All right, good morning again. Could you please stand for the reading of God's Word? And if you're wondering why is it that we do what we do uh, when we read the Bible, is, we just want to show reverence to the Lord and His Word when we read it. Uh, we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. And we're going to be reading um, a few verses from it, and I'll be calling them out as we go. Matthew, chapter 1, starting on verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 3. Judah, the father of uh, Paris and Sarah, whose name was uh, Tamar. Verse 5. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed, whose uh, mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King David. Now we're going to jump to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Lord, please speak to us. Uh, We know that this is your word. Not a word created by man, invented by man, is your word. Please use it by the power of your spirit and the presence of your spirit. In the name of Jesus we pray. And the church says, you may, you may be seated. So today we start a short series, um, an Advent series that we have uh, called Hidden Christmas. And we're borrowing that name from Tim Keller's book, uh, Hidden Christmas. So... If you're interested in reading the entire book, uh, we, we actually have some copies in our bookstore for you to get if you want. But the main idea behind this series is to see and study some key passages in the Bible that talk about Christmas. But not just to talk about Christmas, but to see and understand, once again, uh, what is the real meaning of Christmas. Now, Matthew 1 is where everything begins, I believe, and is uh, the chapter when we talk about the genealogy of Jesus. Now, if you've ever seen Matthew chapter 1, you know that it's a very long chapter. Uh, actually, the section that talks about the genealogy of Jesus goes from chapter uh, verses 1 all the way to verse 17. And as you noticed, I did not read all of them for two reasons. Number one, that's extremely long. And number two, my ESL teacher did not equip me enough to be able to read all those names. (laughs) I struggled with the ones I read. Imagine the rest. But I I believe that Matthew chapter 1 is one of the genealogy of Jesus. It's one of those that you cannot skip. I know that it sounds boring, but you, you cannot skip it. So my invitation is that you read it little by little. And if you know, if you have Old Testament knowledge, try to see why those names are there. I'm just going to choose some of them today. But from that chapter alone, verses 1 through 17, we can learn three things about Christmas. Things that we probably know, but we have forgotten. Things that we probably never knew, but things that we need. I think that in this season... It's so easy to concentrate on the celebration and the lights and the shopping and the food and the food and the food that it's easy to forget what we celebrate. 
And these are the three things that I think Matthew wants to tell us about Christmas. Christmas is about God doing the unexpected. Two, Christmas is about God saving the unlikely. And Christmas is about God giving the unthinkable. God doing the unexpected, God saving the unlikely, and God giving the unthinkable. So can you please do me a favor just to make you uncomfortable? Look at the person next to you and say this. You need the real meaning of Christmas. Go ahead. Here's a, I, I don't even know why you guys are asking questions. It's just a statement. Hey, by the way, how many of you guys feel uncomfortable every time I ask you to do that? Please raise your hand. Good. You're supposed to get uncomfortable. Let's go with the first one. Christmas is about God doing the unexpected. Verse 1 reads like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it's kind of a weird text to talk about Christmas. Uh, but I believe, once again, that this is one of the best text to talk about Christmas, simply because this is where everything begins. Actually, the word genealogy is the same word that we use uh, for Genesis, which is the same word that we use for the beginning or, or the birth of everything. And what you're going to see in this text is that right from the beginning, God did something completely unexpected. So I have to give you a little bit of context here. When Matthew is writing this thing here, he's got a Jewish um, tradition in mind. His original audience already had a previous, uh, a previous uh, understanding of the Old Testament and the promises of the Old Testament. They knew that God had promised that one day he would send a Savior, someone that would, be, that would give them victory over their enemies, someone that would give them Peace and rest. These people knew this. So this is a group of people that from year to year, from generation to generation, are waiting for this Savior to arrive. So it is grandparents telling their grandchildren, parents telling their children, great-grandparents telling their great-grandchildren that this Savior one day will come. So I could imagine that this is people telling their kids something like, regardless of what we go through, regardless of how painful life is, regardless of how difficult life is, don't worry, God promised a Savior and He will deliver. Year after year, generation after generation, year after year, generation after generation. And that's part of the reason why Matthew starts with these names given to Jesus. He was trying to tell, uh, say to these people, the person you have been waiting for is this person I'm talking about. So he starts with the name Jesus, which means God saves. Then he gives us the name Messiah, which is the anointed one, the promised liberator of Israel. And then he says his name is the son of David meaning that he is the appointed king. He comes from the family of David because they knew that the Savior would come from the family of David. He calls him the son of Abraham to emphasize that Jesus was the promised fulfillment 
that he was the one that was promised to Abraham, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Matthew is telling these people that are desperately waiting for a Savior, this is the Savior. This is the one you have been waiting for. This is the one that is going to give you victory over your enemies. He is the Messiah. He is the King. He is the promised one. He is the son of Abraham. He is the one that is going to give you peace and rest. But you got to keep in mind, though, that these people already know Jesus. Or at least they have heard about Jesus. They knew that Jesus was a man with a humble upbringing. They knew that he grew up just like a regular person. They knew that he did not grow up like a king. They had probably seen Jesus and heard Jesus' teachings, and they knew that he had gone to the cross And they knew that he had died, and they had heard the rumors that this Jesus resurrected. So can you imagine these people waiting for this promised Savior? Matthew says that this is the Savior. But then again, they see Jesus, and they think that this Jesus doesn't match what they're waiting for. There is no king born in a manger. That's what they think. There's no warrior that allows to be killed. There's no royalty that is a carpenter. There's no savior that looks like that. And the reason why I'm saying that is because Isaiah makes it clear that Jesus looked like a regular guy, probably skinny, not good looking. Actually, that's almost certain. There was nothing attractive about him. Isn't that crazy? So they don't know how to put these things together. These people have the same issue that we still have today. We have these preconceptions of who God is and the way he's supposed to do things. The same problem forever. But this is the beauty of Christmas. That God does the unexpected. God does something that is completely illogical from a human perspective. He breaks into our world, and becomes just like us, which is crazy. The God of the universe becomes a tiny little human. If you don't believe that you're a tiny little human, just try to see the perspective of humanity from an airplane. And we're next to nothing. And yet, we celebrate that we have a God that came to suffer what we suffer, to live what we live, to enjoy what we enjoy, to be just like us. And I want to tell you today that unless you believe that with all your heart and you embrace that with all your heart, you don't have not only Christmas, but you don't have Christianity at all. Because there is no other religion per se in the world that talks about a God that becomes a human being. There is nothing else in the history of the world that talks about that, just Christianity. And once again, unless you truly believe with all your heart that God became a human being, you have no Christianity you have no reason why to celebrate Christmas.
but we do. So I want you to li- uh, listen to Max Lucado. This is a famous writing, uh, famous piece that he's, years ago he wrote, but I, I want you to read it because uh, this describes why is it that this event is so important. God became a man. While the creatures of earth walk unaware, divinity arrived. Heaven opened herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent, in one instant, made himself breakable. He who had been a spirit became perceivable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who, who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus. Isn't that crazy? Holiness is living in a womb. The creator of life being created. God had come near. He came not as a flash of light or, or as an approachable conqueror. The, hand, the hands that first helped him were a manicure, calloused, and dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. Were it not for the shepherds, there would have been no reception. And were it not for a group of stargazers, there would have been no gifts. Jesus may have had pimples. You ever thought of that before? So if you're young here today, this one is for you. Jesus had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him and vice versa. It could be that his knees were bony for all of us as skinny people. One thing's for sure, he was what completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He got colds, burped, and had a body odor. His feelings got hurt, his feet got tired, and his head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It is not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation. Clean the manure from around the manger, wipe the sweat out of his eyes, pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. There is something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant, packaged, and predictable. But don't do it for heaven's sake. Don't. Let him be as human as he's intended to be. Do you know why? Because unless you have God as a human being, you can never have a relationship with him. And you have every excuse to complain about him. But because God becomes a man, it is possible for us to have a personal relationship with him. And that's what makes Christianity so unique, so wonderful, and so perfect. Let me tell you why. Because if that is true, and it is, then you could never say that God doesn't understand you. Because if that is true and it is, you could never say that God doesn't know what you go through. Because if that is true and it is, you could never say that God doesn't know what it means to be limited and feel pain. 
Because if that is true, and it is, you could never, ever say that God is distant, that he doesn't care, that you are nobody to him. You could never say that. Because he became like one of us. He became a tiny little human being. He came to do what no one expected he would do. I believe that that's the only way that we could actually deal with our sense of emptiness and loneliness, you know? We all struggle with that. Even if you have been a believer for years, and even if you're thinking about becoming a believer, that's your struggle. It was interesting because not only Christians talk about this, but secular people talk about this. I was listening to an interview um, for, uh, from a comedian, Louis C.K., uh, interview that he had with uh, Conan O'Brien, and he was talking about how he's keeping his kids from um, using phones. And part of the reason why he says that he's doing this is because we don't know how to deal with our loneliness. And we use technology to quench our loneliness. Listen to this. What the phones are taking away is the ability to just sit there. I find that to be so true. That that's being a person. Because underneath everything in your life, there is this thing, that empty, forever empty. That knowledge, that knowledge, uh, that it's all for nothing and that you are alone. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching anything, you are in the car and you start going, oh no, here it comes, I'm alone. And it starts to visit on you just this sadness. That's why, we that's why we text and drive, he says. I look around, pretty much 100% of the people driving are texting. They're killing everybody. But people are willing to risk taking a life and, run and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for just a second because being alone is hard. And that's precisely why we celebrate Christmas. Because we have a Savior that knows what it means to be a human being. We have a Savior that doesn't know how to love from the distance. We have a Savior that came into our own little tiny dirty world to get dirty for the people he loves. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's all of that. But in order to be that, he first had to become a human being. It'll be the only way that he could actually represent us in front of the Father. It'll be actually the only way that he could possibly take our spot on the cross. This is the beauty of Christmas. It's about God doing the unexpected. Becoming a tiny person like you and me. Now, Jesus doesn't, Matthew doesn't stop there because he gives us a second principle from the text. It says that Christmas is also about God saving the unlikely. Now, this is, um, I find this amazing because as I'm reading the genealogy uh, and studying the passage, I realized that the people, the type of people God chose to be part of his family it will be people that I will never choose to be part of my family. 
It's such a dysfunctional family. And out of a sudden, I start to feel really good about myself and my family and about this church. Because if we are, an, if we are as dysfunctional as I think we are, we all qualify. That's the good news. And the reason why I say that is because when you go name by name, you could find something wrong with every single little person in that list. I'm going to give you some. We didn't read verse 2, but in verse, two, in verse 2, he mentions Abraham and Isaac. And if you know a little bit of their story, that will be Genesis 20 and 26 if you want to read it. Uh, these two were amazing men, and they did amazing things for the Lord. But both of them, father and son, in different occasions, they lied about their wives to save themselves. Cowards! And yet, they're part of God's family. Don't you find that crazy? You qualify, people. In verse 3, he talks about Judah, which was a man that the Lord used, but when he was young, he had no issues deceiving his brother to steal his rights. Genesis chapter 25. And yet, he's part of God's family. That's good news to you, people. You got Tamar, a woman that wasn't even an Israelite. Listen to this. A woman that tricked her father-in-law in order for her to have a baby. That's crazy. Genesis chapter 38. And yet, she's part of God's family. In verse 25, we find the famous Rahab, Canaanite prostitute. And yet, she's part of God's family. We find Ruth, an immigrant. And yet, She's part of God's family. And in verse 6, which is so interesting, this is the best text there. You find King David. They says that he's the father of Solomon. And if you know anything about Solomon, you know that this guy had issues with girls. And because of him, his kingdom got divided. And yet, he's part of God's family. But then he says that King David was married to Uriah's wife. Which that in itself is super interesting because why don't, why don't just he gives us this lady's name? But there's a reason for it. Because he wants us to know or remember that David's wife in the past did not belong to him. That she belonged to a different man. And that he had an adulterous relationship with this woman. And to cover his affair... He killed his best friend. Uriah happened to be one of the uh, mighty warriors David had. In more than one occasion, these men gave his life for David, and yet he killed them. But David is part of God's family. Now, you got to understand what this means, all right, and how shocking it is. Because the way these people use the genealogy is the same way we use a resume. If you want to impress anybody, you got to put a real nice resume. And if there's some uh, dark, shady parts of your life, you would never put that stuff in the resume. Because this determines your value and your identity. So, for example, when I was writing this, I remember 
my first year out of high school, uh, my first year out of college. Um, this is prior to Christianity, okay? So please don't judge. Um, and, um, and I started to work in this company. It was washing trucks, right? Um, and the company was so good that they laid me off two months into my job, right? But this is the idea. Um, it was a job, and I was writing my resume, and I needed to list this job in my resume because that was the only job I had had. So I thought, well, I cannot write that, I'm a, that I wash trucks. So I gave myself a title. Remember, our resume for many of us is our identity and our worth. So this was my title. Truck Detail Inspector. <laughs> it was brilliant. The problem was when people would ask me what my responsibilities were. And I, I would always say something like this. Well, I walked around the trucks identifying unwanted objects, meaning dirt, <laughs> that could hinder the productivity of the vehicle. I would then proceed to find the equipment necessary to restore the vehicle to its, to, to its optimal condition, meaning water and soap. And what these people did with their genealogy was very similar to what we do with our resume. So if you had someone in your family that would not make you look good, you would never include that person there. If you had someone in your family that was so broken, you would never put him there. Their reputation was your reputation if they were accepted by society, you were accepted by society. If they were famous, you were famous. So the question is, why would Jesus put these names down for us to remember forever? I think that there are two possible answers. And I need you to remember that. Number one, because God wants you to know that you are not supposed to fix yourself in order for you to come to him. You are not supposed to clean up yourself. You just come to him. You come just as you are with the junk we have, with the guilt we have, with the struggles we carry. We come to him just as we are. You know why? Because Jesus is not the type of God that help the ones that help themselves. You know, someone last week quoted that verse to me. That's not a verse. It's nowhere to be found in the Bible. It is precisely because I cannot help myself that he has to bring me in. It is precisely because I cannot help myself and I didn't go to him that he came to me. Jesus did not come to improve the human race. Jesus came to save the human race. That's the difference between good advice and good news. Jesus came to bring the good news. Jesus comes to save and restore the dignity of the last, the least, and the lost. Therefore, we all qualify. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. Listen to Tim Keller in him. No one does not, 
No one, not even the greatest, does not need the grace of Jesus Christ. No one, not even the worst, can fail to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, prostitute and king sit down as equals. Male and female, Jew and Gentile, one race and another race, moral and immoral, we are all the same if we believe in Jesus Christ. If you accept the good news, prostitute and king sit together as equals, and that's amazing. You know, the more time I spend with the Lord, the more Christian I become, the more I believe the words of Jack Miller. He used to say, cheer up, you are worse than what you think. (laughs) And then he would always say, cheer up, the gospel is far greater than you can imagine. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Because God loves to save the unlikely. But there's a second reason why I think Jesus uh, includes those names there. Because he wants us to know that if you are already a believer, or you become a believer, regardless of what you have done or you do, present, regardless of what you have committed or commit, regardless of anything that you have done or continue to do, if you belong to him, he will never be ashamed of you. Isn't that a beautiful thing? He will never be ashamed of you. Because to him, your sins don't define you. Because to him, your sins don't define you. Let me use an illustration here that I used a few months ago, but I haven't been able to find a better illustration. And this one comes from Jack Miller as well. Listen, I know that even if you have been walking with the Lord for a while, every time you have sinned or done something really dumb, You feel the guilt that you're supposed to feel. You feel the shame that you're supposed to feel. And the idea is that God allows those things, but not to keep us there, but to bring us back to him. But I learned that just thinking about it is not enough. If you divorce it from who you are in Jesus Christ. So he was talking about the story about this young girl that had uh, problems with her father. Never had a good relationship with her father. Um, and she's, as, a, as an adult, she's having this conversation with a counselor, and the counselor asks her, um, what, what, how, do, how do you think that God sees you? Do you think that God is ashamed of you? And she says, well, I think so. So she started to dig into her heart and into her past, and she tells the story about when she was a little girl, she wanted to do something special for her dad, and she goes and grabs one of her dad's working t-shirt or shirts and wash it and needs to dry it, and she, but, but the line where she, you're supposed to dry the, t-shirt, the shirt was so high that she dragged this wheelbarrow, old wheelbarrow, so she could stand on it, but she puts the shirt on the wheelbarrow, And then she hangs it, and she didn't realize that the shirt is now stained. Father gets home, and she goes, Daddy, Daddy, look at what I did for you. And shows the shirt full of stains, and the father is like, what is this? What have you done? 
Are you stupid? So the counselor asked the girl, what would Jesus do? And the girl says, oh, he will forgive me. And the counselor said, you don't get it. Jesus will not forgive you, just forgive you. Jesus will grab the stinky shirt and put it on and go to work and brag about you. Look at what my daughter did for me. He will never be ashamed of you. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, or if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, he will never feel ashamed of you. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Because God saves the unlikely. And Matthew doesn't stop there. Because it also tells us that God does the unthinkable. So right at the end, in verse 17, there's this really awkward verse that says that there were 14 generations from, all the, from Abraham to David, and then another 14 generations from David, David to the exile to Babylon, and then another 14 generations from the exile to the Messiah. And if you notice, there are six groups of seven names. And basically what Matthew is saying as he lists all these people and he gives us two sets of 14, which is six sevens, is that Jesus is the seventh seven. Now pay attention here. Because seven in the Bible is the most beautiful number there is. It's always a number that represents completeness, plenitude, and rest. And this is why, Je this is why Matthew finishes that way. Because he wants you to know the reason why God does the unthinkable. The reason why God comes and, and saves the people that nobody would save. The reason why come Jesus comes and humbles himself. And then that's a foreshadow to the cross. And then he goes to the cross and takes the punishment you deserve. Is so you find in him everything that you so much wanted. Everything that you so much desire. It's so that you find in him the completeness you long for, the plenitude you want, and the rest you're craving for. That's why. So yes, celebrate Christmas. Yeah, dance and eat and buy lights and decorate your house and spend time with the loved ones. Do all of that. But at the end of the day, we got to say what St. Augustine said. You have made us for yourself, and my heart can't find rest until it, re it finds rest in you. Question. Do you have that? Listen, if you're still trying to gain something, you maybe don't have that. If you're still trying to prove yourself, maybe, just maybe, you don't have that. If you're still trying to defend yourself every time someone argues with you, maybe, just maybe, you don't have that. If you think that you got to prove that you got worth and identity, you, maybe you still don't have that. 
Maybe, just maybe, Christmas is the best season for you to rest in Him. Maybe, just maybe, you could actually say, I am worse than what I thought I was, and yet the grace of God is more beautiful than what I ever expected. Maybe, just maybe, the reason why we have to celebrate Christmas time after time is because we continue to struggle with the same thing. Maybe, just maybe, you really need to believe. Oh, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. He wants two things of you, just two things of you. Repent and believe. Nothing else. Repent and believe. Amen? Let's pray.